Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression, and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds, one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, we broadcast the recorded panel between Jillian Foster, Fariba Nawa, and Terry Yuan on feminism and domestic violence during COVID. The episode was recorded live on June 12, 2020 for the Feminism in the Age of COVID conference series and is co-produced by the Continuum Collective, the Engendered Collective, and the OnSpec podcast. Jillian moderates a conversation on how COVID-19 has impacted the work that we are doing in the United States and in the Muslim Belt, and how different societies deal with violence against women, especially as it relates to varying conceptions of feminism. Our conversation delves into the role of faith leaders in the lives of survivors, the notion of accountability and how it is manifest in these different regions, and why it's important to have a feminist lens for interrogating violence and oppression. Okay, everybody, I want to thank you for joining us. Um, This is the second session in our Feminism in COVID series. Um, And this is a co-produced series between Continuum and a variety of other organizations. Um, I think there's 11 total organizations, which is really fantastic. And uh, two of the the partners are actually represented on this session today. Uh, Fariba Nawa, who is from the OnSpec podcast and uh, Terry Yuen, who's from Engendered Collective as well as Engendered Podcast. So I'm going to um, start by just kind of laying out some information, some kind of ground rules, if you will, and then we'll dive into our conversation. So first, we're asking everyone to turn off their cameras and to mute themselves, except for the speakers at this moment, because we're actually recording this session and um, we need everybody to... Um, not appear on camera for privacy reasons. If you could do that, it looks like everyone is already doing that. So thank you so much. Um, And when we go into Q&A after the discussion, we will open the opportunity for everyone else to participate. And you can do so by raising your virtual hand or you can type into the chats, comments or questions. um, And we'll do that after we've had our our discussion. So a little bit about Continuum. Continuum is the mother organization to a few different products or activities that we do. Um, We are a a collective of people. We have Continuum Collective, which is our community of people um, in really uh, striving for this intentional interconnected feminism. And um, it's an online community. So we welcome all that would like to join us. We have only one rule, no assholes, which is how I try to live my life as well. And (laughs) we also put out the Radicals and Revolutionaries Lab podcast. So at the end of this, I'll give you some links you can go to to find out more. Um, I want to send a, a special thank you to um, Morgan Richards, who's on the line as well, who has been the executive producer for this whole series and herded all of the cats. Uh, it's been amazing. And then um, Sarah Letitia Dan- Jansen, who's provided both graphics as well as tech support, um, which has been vital. So let's start the session, and I'm going to first give you some bios and backgrounds on each of our speakers. This is a little bit different session than the previous one. Um, We had kind of one speaker, and I was uh, doing more of like an interview kind of process. This one instead is um, much more of a panel, so kind of a three-way discussion. And uh, the first person who is joining us is Fariba Nawa. Fariba is 
the mother of two inquisitive and rambunctious girls. Fariba has covered, uh, excuse me, has been covering global news for 20 years from places like Afghanistan, Egypt, Iran, Pakistan, and Turkey. She is also a speaker and author of the book Opium Nation, Child Brides, Drug Lords, and One Woman's Journey Through Afghanistan. Fariba is a native Afghan. She's fluent in Farsi and Dari and can get by in both Arabic and Turkish as well, um, as well as uh, fluency in English. So uh, you have me beat on knowing more languages than I can even imagine. <laughs> um, some of her recent work can be found in the New Yorker, PRI, and the Financial Times. Uh, our second guest is Terry Yuen. Terry is a survivor, a feminist business consultant, and founder of the Engendered Collective, which is a platform for survivors, practitioners, and allies to connect in community learning and advocacy through the radical inquiry of patriarchy. As part of the collective's work, Terry manages the Can Do It Q&A social service community and hosts the weekly podcast Engendered, the Engendered podcast, which explores the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and offers solutions to end it. Engendered uses gender as a lens to better understand power and oppression and its impact on the private realm, so as to better recognize and confront in the public sphere these issues. Terry believes that by developing a cultural uh, literacy around power and abuse of power, we can reclaim how we define liberty in relationships and in civic life and solve many of our most urgent social justice challenges. Okay, and I, I'm Jillian Foster, I'm the founder of Continuum, and I like to say I'm the fairy godmother to the, to the Continuum Collective. Um, I kind of buzz around in the background, coming up with ideas, and then um, Morgan and Sarah helped me to implement these ideas. So, <laughs> so that's a little bit about me. Um, let's dive into our conversation, if that's okay with you two. I first thought it might be good um, if we take a deep dive into um, the work that each of you are doing and how COVID has changed that work. Sure. So um, we launched the Engendered Collective in February of this year, and we launched with some in-person events. And so certainly the most immediate impact from COVID is that we had to scale back our expectations of growing uh, in-person events locally across the country and move everything online to virtual meetings. That's actually been, I think, more helpful in a way because we've been able to reach more survivors and uh, practitioners. Um, but it's also, of course, exacerbated the challenges that a lot of the survivors are dealing with in their personal lives. Yeah, I would imagine it's hard for survivors to find private space right now, especially to join these conversations. Is that is that true? Well, it's more for the survivors who are sharing children with their former partners who are either abus abusive or coercively controlling. And so there have been a lot of um, there's been a lot of weaponization of COVID against these survivors to either restrict uh, their parenting, parenting time or to potentially use the children as an additional tool to emotionally and psychologically add stress and harm, not just the survivor, but also the children. Right, right. Fariba, have you noticed some of the, some similar things in your work? Because I know you are working across multiple contexts and um, 
and in more of kind of almost like a public facing way with the podcast and media? Yeah, well, yeah, we've been doing uh, most, I mean, most journalists have had to give up field reporting and on spec podcast is all about field reporting. We go to the field, we have freelancers working globally. We were in the midst of our first season, which was really doing well. And then we had to stop and come back and check in and decided to start covering the pandemic and what were some of the issues and do these theme-based stories from, again, from around the globe, not just these sort of Western focused stories, but where are we going to go? How are we going to reach people? And, you know, doing radio or podcasting, it's very important to get the sound quality right. And that became um, sort of compromised because everything had to be like this, you know, far away and on the phone and what was the best app to use. But one of the things that we are doing is, uh, uh, an upcoming episode on um, gender-based violence focused on a Syrian woman in Iraq, and she's literally running for her life right now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have th- the issues that exist in in the U.S. or in Western countries is pretty dire. We know this. It's gone up globally, but it, it, there is some level of accountability and justice that you can turn to in these countries, whereas in places like like Iraq and Afghanistan, there really isn't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, on my end, I, so I do a lot of research in this area. I do a lot of work on what's called conflict related sexual violence. And um, the pandemic has put our work in like the, the literal kind of patterns, like you're mentioning Fariba, as well as Terry into question, because, you know, I physically can't go places. It's very hard to have meetings with survivors or survivor led organizations. Um, and, there's a new focus on, you know, what does physical safety mean when you are not only trying to uh, prevent harm for yourself and possibly your children, um, but also um, you're trying to, you know, kind of outrun a a, a pandemic, which is um, invisible until it hits you kind of thing. Quite challenging. So I think it, it, it this leads us kind of nicely into to an, another thing that we can talk about, kind of how different societies deal with violence against women, especially um, as that's related to different conceptions of feminism. So, for example, you know, Islamic feminism w- that we see uh, quite vibrantly in, you know, the Turkish feminist movement versus kind of the rest of the Muslim belt. Um, I think, Fariba, you be, you're really well positioned to kind of speak in depth about this. And then maybe, Terry, we can kind of jump into how Engendered Podcast is also reflecting some of these differences. Yeah, sure. I mean, in, in, these, in this part of the world where family plays such an important role, one of the first things you need is your family to back you up. And if you don't have that, it's really difficult to get the support system you need. Turkey is a much better example. They have hotlines. They have a very strong feminist movement. They have a very strong civil society and organizations. But still, still, the numbers are rising exponentially. Just in April, there was a 50% rise in the number of calls coming to a group called We Will Stop Femicides. They've been dealing with, uh, and, and everything has slowed down. Just like Terry was saying, for example, the police was already a problem. When women go to them and say, we're being beaten, they're told to go home. Um, but now, mm. not only are they being told to go home, but in terms of shelters, the shelters are full. And they're told that you have to have a, a battery report from the hospital proving that you were physically harmed for us to take you in, number one. Number two, you have to have a negative corona test, which makes it equally, you know, which makes it, so difficult but they do have these mobile apps and women have been reaching out they have hotlines but the hotlines nobody's there to man these hotlines for some reason they're not they're so busy they're not getting through 
Um, so women are left with very few options, especially refugee women, I would say, because if you don't speak Turkish and you have, you know, almost three to four million refugees living in Turkey from from Syria, Afghanistan, Somalia, everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. But the way to deal with it, I think if you have a neighbor who cares, if you have a, this is very much a community-based society, you know, where people turn to who's there. If your neighbors call, if your family's backing you up, if you can go to a relative's house. That's what the police has been telling women who come in. Just go to your, go back to your husband or go back to your relative's house. So, and I think that's kind of one of the most acceptable ways to, to deal with this right now. But there's been, um, in Turkey, for example, in the last month or so, we've seen, Uh, we've seen some interesting things. One was uh, on social media, you'll see. Uh, it's very hard to get news here that's not controlled by the government. But if you mm -hmm. go on Twitter, then you do. So one person started this uh, hashtag called something like put men in their place. And it was sort of a play on the rhetoric of how women should be. Men should wear miniskirts. Men should wash the, you know, men should cook. And so they switched it around and it went viral. And of course, there was opposition from the, from even the women's organization, from the ruling government. They came in and said, this is anti-Islamic. This is against our, our society. But mm -hmm. people were having fun with it. Even the musicians and the Turkish actors and people of influence here really had fun with it. And I think... Those kinds of things have powerful influence, especially on the younger generation. But for, mm -hmm. for the survivors that Terry's like referring to and those, they, they really need urgent help. And the, the ministry here, they're calling it, used to be the women's ministry. They changed it to the family ministry since yes. the ruling government has come in. They, they, they're very uh, much into that word. And uh, they don't have an urgent plan in action. They don't, they don't know what, what to do with these women at times like this. Right. So your best bet is your 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 family. Mm -hmm. How are this is kind of related to kind of a personal interest in mine and some research that I've done over the past number of years with faith leaders. So I find that in contexts and communities where faith is a really big part of the community and actually it kind of blends with the political world, um, faith leaders can have a major impact in the lives of survivors in kind of different ways than we might think about in the U.S., especially as it's related to kind of men's appropriate behavior or not appropriate behavior. Yeah. Have course. you noticed any of that? Yeah, I think if you, there have been movements to bring in the, specifically in Turkey, they call it the Diyanet, which is sort of the, the religious body of the government that is that controls things and makes a lot of statements. Um, there have been members who are part of the Diyanet in the past who've, who've, um, Sorry, if I mute that. Then. It's okay. <laughs> um, who have basically uh, said things to condone violence against women. But in those cases, even the President Erdogan will come out and condemn it. So, mm. you know, the one thing that Islamic feminists and even the, the, the women working in the government and pretty much across sector agree with is that women should not be beaten. There should right. be, you know, that is un-Islamic. Um, and I think, but, but then implementing, what does that mean? I mean, the question that I kind of have been asking feminists today in Turkey when I was preparing for this talk is, has there been any discussion about um, restorative or re reform? Like, instead mm -hmm. of throwing these men in jail, which they're not. I'll give you an example. Uh, a few years ago during the Me Too movement, there was one very well-known case here in Turkey. Uh, a well-known musician, singer named Sila, 
accused her boyfriend of beating her and ended up taking him to court. And it became a big case that everybody was watching internationally. Well, he was convicted, but nothing happened to him. He wasn't put Mm -hmm. in prison. He was basically slapped on the wrist and said, if you do it again, then we'll deal with you. So the, the, the justice system doesn't do much for women here. And even if these men did go to prison, are they going to reform when they get out? Are they going to go back after the, you know, after their, the women they've been harassing and beating physically? So I, I haven't gotten an answer for that yet. I don't think, I think they do have some kind of like counseling for these men, but it's not a big enough program to look into it. And that's something that I've been really interested in, in looking into is, you know, mm-hmm. lock him up. Does that do any good? Uh, is that our goal, for example? Uh, but or, or what, you know, because that they're not being successful in that department. Right, right. What What about you, Terry? Terry, you've spoken with so many different people on your podcast who work in this area, who are survivors themselves, um, and they, I'm sure, have quite a few different kind of models for addressing um, sexual and gender-based violence, or, or what we often, in the U.S., we kind of term it domestic violence. Those that often, that work in this area, sometimes call it IPV, or intimate partner violence, so I'm curious if you can share with us some reflections that you have from interviewing so many people on your podcast. Sure. So as a survivor, you know, I, this is very personal work for me. And I don't bring anyone, for the most part, I don't bring anyone onto my show whose ideas around structural or policy reform I don't already agree with. So I'm using the platform as a way to amplify their voices and ideas. And, you know, I think that, and and what we try to do with the Engendered Collective is really to mobilize the survivors that we have who are members against the dominant narratives of intimate partner violence from a feminist approach because, so much of what's happening in this space, unlike what you might see in other public sectors, like around, you know, let's say an anti-racist organization, if like a, if you have a Black Lives Matter organization, for the most part, I would say they're probably all required in their organization to be participating in some sort of anti-racism decolonialization training. And that's not the case within the nonprofit organizations that are serving survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault, because that sector has been so corporatized over the past 40 plus years. And and so you have so this this problem of um, structural and internalized sexism that permeates and is also structurally invisible to not just the providers, but but to also the people, you know, in the external systems, obviously, like the law enforcement um, partners and people who are in the mental health professions as well. None of them, if you're serving survivors, are required to be engaging in anti-sexism training. And so the problem is that these um, stereotypes keep persisting, these myths, like, you know, Fariba just mentioned mental health and jail. Um, so it's it's been now pretty established and debunked that domestic abuse is a is a choice that um, men make and it's not about mental health it's those may be triggers those may be um, potentially symptoms but those are not the causes and so when it's a deliberate choice that men use as evan stark says um, it's a gendered crime which when he defines course of control because it's about men 
um, engaging in behaviors in individual relationships to secure their political power and to reinforce persistent sexual inequities in our society. And so when, when it's, when it's, if you define it in that way, then many of the guests that I've had properly define domestic abuse as gender terrorism or intimate partner terrorism, because one of the myths is that domestic abuse is just physical. And if you see it and cast it in the way where it's about restricting someone's liberty, a woman's liberty, um, similar to the uh, ways in which prisoner of, prisoners of war are treated or um, citizens of an authoritarian state like China, then that's, that's how we cast coercive control. And so there's a whole range of tactics that are being used to restrict someone so that you're, it's not about what an, a person does to another person, either physically, emotionally, psychologically, it's what a, one person does to restrict the other person from doing for herself. And so in that respect, our criminal justice system has not been effective because all systems in our society are sexist. And, and if you want to throw out the criminal justice system, you need to throw out domestic violence organizations as well. <laughs> you need to throw out mental health providers as well. And so I, along with many of the people who I work with in advocacy for reform in this area, we believe that the solution is a combination of, yes, prison reform, Defunding the police, you know, that's been discussed recently in the past few, several weeks, especially. But also at the same time, because nobody has actually taken domestic violence seriously, domestic abuse seriously, we also need to increase accountability for those crimes. And the reason, as many of my guests have said, that this continues as a persistent problem in our society is because collectively we haven't pinpointed this as to the same level as terrorism as in other countries they have, like in Australia and England. You know, they, they treat these crimes, or at least view it um, from a societal perspective, at that same level of urgency. And so if you're going to be treating that crime in that way, domestic abusers aren't going to jail. And so one of the first things that they're suggesting, and which I agree with, is we need to put them in jail. <laughs> because those are the people who are actually not going into jail because coercive control has not been criminalized in our country. And once that's the case, once we prove that we care about these behaviors and we care about stopping them, then there's gonna be a deterrence, um, deterrent that actually will actually stop them. And there are many other suggestions that some of my um, guests have offered too, but the most important thing that we need to prioritize is accountability. Yeah. So before we launch into what I think will be a really vibrant discussion about accountability, um, I just wanted to note that um, kind of building off what you were saying, Terry, um, it reminds me of the work by um, Dr. Laura Joberg, who I adore. She writes a lot about women who are violent. And I think um, looking at looking at sexual violence from that lens actually kind of twists our concept of it and allows us to see things perhaps more clearly. So she talks a lot about this idea of a gendered order, and this gets into the co coercive control point in that um, no matter who the survivor is, no matter who the perpetrator is, basically what's happening is it's like it's a it's a reinforcing or a reifying of this gendered order that um, 
that preferences or places higher on a hierarchy, um, masculine or men, men's needs versus women and or feminine needs and survival. And so um, domestic violence, intimate partner violence, sexual violence is often this, um, the desire or the need by the perpetrator to reify this structure and to um, kind of cut off the autonomy and the the mobility of the survivor. Um, I think that's a really powerful way of looking at it because it it weaves in this um, financial, emotional, mobility, physical um, violence and control. Yes, and I and I think that's a different way of stating what Evan Stark says when he defines course of control, which you know I think confuses a lot of people who are operating in this space because they don't have that, again, feminist perspective and lens for analysis is that people get confused when there's same-sex violence or people get confused when there's female violence. But if you look at the research uh, in Jess Hill's book, See What You Made Me Do, she has a whole chapter on research on intimate partner violence and she debunks some of the research around female violence and not that it's not legitimate, but that it's not the same level, it's not the same scope and severity. And and it certainly doesn't create the same level of fear and intimidation that women have when they are the victims. You know, we fear death and men don't fear um, that. And so, um, so men, you know, Evan Stark's really emphasizes coercive of control as a set of tactics to secure male privilege. And anybody can use those tactics, including men, women. You know, we, women all the time uphold patriarchy in their behaviors and their votes <laughs> and, and whatever they do. And so um, that doesn't mean that the larger framework of understanding how patriarchy is reinforced you know, doesn't exist just because the actor may be female or maybe a same-sex situation. Exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, as as is often noted by researchers, practitioners, advocates, activists, you know, survivors, the the scope looks very, very different when you when you look at the different um, you know, sex or gender of the survivor, basically. So the scope is just for for women as survivors as just outweighs dramatically male survivors or other survivors. So it's it's this um, understanding that basically the underbelly, I like to think of it this way, the underbelly of patriarchy is unfortunately a deep, deep hatred of women. And the the manifestation of that or the, the articulation of that is often sexual violence. And, you know, what that looks like in each context is different. And I think also, you know, what what accountability looks like in each context is different. So why don't we um, kind of wrap our conversation toward the the last thing we wanted to talk about, which is how does the concept of accountability shift in different settings? You know, what does it look like in New York, Terry, where you're located? And then also in for Fariba in kind of the in the Muslim belt more generally, what what does accountability look like? Because you know, if we're talking about a justice system that is already not working in most locations, even in the US. Um, it's just, it's like actually not solving the issue. Then what does accountability look like? Well, in this part of the world, of course, it's, you know, each country is, is dealing with it differently. And Afghanistan is on a very, in a really much more urgent and dire situation, which is my home mm-hmm. country dealing with war. And it gets worse as there is more general violence. So, for example, in Turkey, uh, I think the numbers have gone up since the coup 
here in 2016, mm -hmm. uh, urbanization, unemployment, all of that are causes for more violence against women and what happens. But also as women gain um, more empowerment, whether it's economically, whether it's through divorce, they are killed here. There's a group mm -hmm. that I mentioned before called We Will Stop Femicides. Now there's accountability. There's these specific women's groups that are their grassroots organizations that are coming together on a volunteer basis. What they do is they go to every single case where a woman, they have volunteers all over Turkey in different cities, and they mm -hmm. will go to the homes, to the family homes and find out what happened because they don't trust that the police will do the job. Um, and they will provide legal support, moral support, even, uh, you know, with emotional support for these families. And then they take that, those numbers and they make them public and they'll mm -hmm. put them on social media. So at least people are aware of what's happening. Um, they've been doing reports and they've been successful and they've been well covered in the international media as well. But that's one thing. The other things I live in a shame-based society. If there's one thing that, that is common, as you call the Muslim belt, is that you can shame people and it works in a way. So violence, again, you can use the faith. We can, you can talk about the faith. You can invoke the faith and say, in Islam, we don't beat women. So let's not beat women. How do you, um, and, you, and mm -hmm. that shame can be within the community, within the family, uh, within social media. And it seems in some cases, it might deter the problem uh, maybe not for long because this is learned behavior and these are perpetrators, like Terry said, they're out to get you. So until you put them in jail and make sure that woman is safe, uh, it, it, it isn't going to happen. Another thing that's been happening here is that these men will go to jail, but they got, I covered a case of an Afghan a girl who was raped by her smuggler. She was forced into marriage in Afghanistan. She came here as a refugee. She fled on the way. We all know the migration trail is a very dangerous trail. Once she made it to Istanbul, she was raped. So, uh, and then I started to investigate this case. So of course, when the media comes in, specifically the American media, the Turkish police pay attention, right? Mm -hmm. And two weeks after me and an, another volunteer, refugee volunteer, Stella Chiarelli, who's a Brazilian, we started to investigate, the guy was arrested. He was also an Afghan refugee, but he was a smuggler. He was arrested mm -hmm. and given 10, and we eventually convinced uh, the, the survivor to testify against him. She did. He got 10 years in prison, but he managed to get a hold of her from prison. Um, and then he was out in two. He's already out on the streets. And yeah. she's still, she has, still hasn't got her asylum case to the U.S. yet. So she's basically in hiding from him. And right. so that's another problem. How do you solve that when they do go to jail, when the system does its job, but then there's something called the, they give discounts for uh, perpetrators here for wearing a tie. If you wear a tie in suit in court and you act nice, your, your sentence is dropped already. So mm. these, these feminists and activists here have been talking about this incessantly and trying to fix this. But in Istanbul, there was a the Istanbul Convention of 2012. I don't know if you've heard of it, but this was an accord from the Europeans uh, that, you know, they came here and it was signed here and gender equality and all of these issues were, were, were in discussion, but it's not being implemented. That's mm -hmm. the biggest problem. Accountability equals implementation. So, Yeah. Yeah, I thought I love that. It's like a we could make a T-shirt and everybody wear it. Accountability equals implementation. Yeah. What what 
What are your reflections, Terry, from kind of New York City or, or maybe the U.S. more generally, if you want to share? So I have three levels of accountability I want to address. So on the individual level, I think um, this is what we do when working with our survivors and the, our members of the Engendered Collective. We really try to be in a space of openness and self-reflection and self-awareness and learning. And so part of that is in, in recognizing what has informed our choices, you know, this, the internalized sexism that has made us, for example, um, feel inadequate and um, not worthy and, and how that plays out in relationships so that we really want to prioritize self-care. So accountability to ourself is about self-care um, and self-love. Um, now on the systems level, accountability for us, I'm not saying this is happening in New York, but we're trying to advocate that they reflect on this more and consider it more, is looking back at programs and interventions that have worked. And so what has worked is coordinated community response, where different parts of the community work together and prioritize that victim safety, the you know, women and children's safety is important to them as a collect as a society that it's important equity equality is important and taking action to make sure that anybody who wants to offend and abuse sees that and is deterred by it um, because there's a system that's coordinating to help the survivor be safe and hopefully reach security that also means collectively potentially looking at different interventions outside of the country in different areas of the world that have worked. And so in Jess Hill's book, she talks about the idea of women's policing that is in the global south, where in Argentina, you have women police officers who patrol um, different parts of the community and check in on victims and survivors. And their job is not to arrest or enforce the law. Their job is to meet the, the survivor where she's at. And so that level of accountability um, where you're checking in on someone, but if at some point, you know, and, and that's what anecdotally and also in terms of research, it shows, you know, there's between seven and nine times it takes someone to leave a relationship um, before they actually, you know, finally make that decision and do so. And so if you're there as... A, uh, a planting the seed and showing them that there's this opportunity, there's this opportunity to change your mind at some point in the future and create a safety plan uh, when you're ready, then that's really valuable. Another part of systems accountability is not making excuses for abusers. Um, and so a lot of that is happening in the restorative justice space where people are conflating the racism that has led to mass incarceration with abusers because abusers are not in jail. <laughs> Nobody who's committing domestic violence is in jail. So yes, we need criminal justice reform and we need to uh, make sure that the people who are the gatekeepers are in you know, filtered out and not anti-racist, just like the gatekeepers who work in nonprofits serving survivors. But we also need to look at domestic abuse holistically, which is why we need to criminalize coercive control. So that's another form of accountability. And then on the societal end, I want to just summarize, we need to be able to treat sexism and misogyny at the same level as we treat racism. You know, there's that nobody says the N word, but there are plenty of words to describe women that are acceptable. And 
And so our disc our discomfort with racism needs to be the, at the same level as our discomfort with sexism. Absolutely. I see this all the time in my circle. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Sometimes I think of it as like the the last acceptable acceptable form of oppression against others or um, discrimination is uh, gender discrimination. As in, you know, it it's fairly commonly taboo at this point to be um, kind of openly racist. You may hold these heinous views in your heart, but you know, we all tend to kind of think like, you know, censor oneself. But when it comes to gender or misogyny, it's like, who gives a fuck? But that's like the, the last remaining acceptable discriminatory issue. It, it makes me a bit crazy. In my um, Muslim I, American community, this is rampant. I'm constantly bringing this up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really insidious. Um, I like to say that um, everywhere has gender issues or gender equality problems or gender inequality. The flavor and articulation of it looks different in each place, though. In some places, it's like very up in your face, kind of hits you in the face. In other places, and I would say especially in the U.S., it tends to be kind of under the radar. And in that way, it's almost more insidious. It's kind of like you don't know it's there until it's there and then it's really fucked up. Um, it's it's quite a quite challenging. I wanted to just add um, one one of one thought from my own work, and then we can open it up for Q and A because we're definitely at that point. Um, I just wanted to add that you know this idea that's come forward in a lot of my work when um, working with, with survivors in conflict affected communities um, like the Congo, like some parts of Ethiopia and Kenya and Somalia and Somaliland. This idea of reparations comes forward constantly from survivors, and it is a a, a call to action from survivors to the international community that is yet to be met. And it's a complicated issue. And, um, but I think it's extremely important, something for us to consider in environments where when you are um, a survivor of sexual violence, um, and it's it, particularly when it's known and been visible to your community, you're often ostracized to all hell, and you have to actually physically leave the community and you know start over. And it's extremely difficult. Not only are you potentially dealing with, you know, physical injury and emotional injury, but now you have to figure out how to have a livelihood and how to kind of survive um, with the ramifications of that, uh, that experience. And reparations are one thing that survivors constantly call for in an effort to kind of um, start over. And I think it's something that the community and practitioners and advocates that work on this issue really need to think hard about, but that's my, my plea <laughs> for reparations. So I want to open it up for questions. And I know the way that we did it in, in the past is basically you can chat and type your question. Um, you can also um, unmute yourself if you want. We'll call on you and can, you can kind of raise your hand. Um, and um, we'll let everybody kind of think for a minute unless anyone has anything right off the bat they'd like to start with. Um, but if not, I have a question that's been submitted. We solicited questions online in our promotion of the event. So we have some that have already been submitted. So I'm going to start with one that was submitted while everyone kind of lets this percolate in their mind, because this is a heavy topic. It's um, It brings up a lot of emotions and a lot of thoughts, sometimes anger, sometimes hope. So I want you to sit with that and come up with your question. Um, but before that, why don't we talk about um, why is it important to have a feminist lens or kind of feminist framework when interrogating violence and oppression? Terry, go ahead. Terry, you want to start? <laughs> sure. So... It's kind of like, why is it important to have um, a critical race lens when interrogating racism? You know, that's... Uh, yeah, that's a really good way to put it, right? actually. <laughs> I mean, it's it's obvious because we are... The, the reason we have sexual violence and oppression is because there's structural sexism. 
And if you don't have that lens, then things are going to be confusing, number one. And we don't want confusion. We don't want people to not be clear around who has power, who gets who gets to benefit from having more power, uh, who is harmed, and who is the perpetrator. And so when you don't have that feminist lens, the confusion then creates more harm, such as what I meant, mentioned earlier, where people are confused about, well, you know, if a woman um, is engaging in self-defense right now, there's more people, women who are incarcerated. They were incarcerated at higher rates in this country than the men who actually abused them um, for engaging in self-defense, right? And so that is um, structural sexism um, through law enforcement's enacting, in, in you know, of, of their an interpretation of criminal law. And that's also a very narrow lens because you're misattributing who is the person who has power. And basically, it's like systemic blaming the victim. You didn't go to the police soon enough or whatever it was, and you took the law into your own hands. And even if it was, you know, whether it was self-defense or it was an act of trauma that led to um, what I guess, you know, maybe a jury might perceive as premeditated. And so, if you don't have that lens, if you end up in a jury, you know, or if you end up working in a nonprofit agency, then all of these people who are there to serve survivors and create a sense of safety um, are continue to will continue to do more harm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I for me, the point of a feminist lens, the 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 need for a feminist lens when doing this type of work is really an understanding of power and the power dynamics and the way that harmful hierarchies of power and oppression can be replicated over and over again in a variety of settings and in a variety of kind of relationship types or perpetrator types. And without that, we um, miss the details and the nuances of the the situation. We miss um, what can be often more invisible types of abuse, like this coercive control you're talking about, that can really like have lasting impacts um, mentally and emotionally on people. It's really, really challenging to kind of extract yourself from abusive situations. And then on top of it, 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 without a feminist lens, we miss populations that are, that are invisibilized, that are marginalized. So this includes um, trans people. This would include same sex relationships where there's um, oppression or violence going on. And this also includes, especially in conflict settings, this includes um, male survivors who are almost entirely unaddressed and un, um, not provided with services. And and there's so much shame wrapped in this, but it's all in my mind, in my own research, I found that all of this links back to a deep hatred of women. All of this links back to patriarchy and all of this links back to this power dynamic, this harmful, oppressive hierarchy. So without a feminist lens, you miss so much of that. Um, and my, my rant is over, so go for you. <laughs> now, you asked this question in the midst of what's happening in my homeland, Afghanistan, which is the Taliban are making a comeback and women have yeah. been crying and screaming and kicking and saying, wait, wait, we need, and they don't use the word feminist. That's way too controversial. Sure. They just want to be counted. So, so that is, you know, it is one of the, the, the worst examples of what could go wrong if you don't have women as part of it. And we're constantly told by our men and support them that, hey, this, we need to have peace first. What you women want doesn't matter. You got to just take mm-hmm. a back seat 
That's a back burner. What they don't understand is peace will not come without women being part of that peace process, right? They don't get that. And so this is such an urgent question for us uh, in Afghanistan. And unfortunately, you know, I want to be hopeful, but it's very difficult to be right now, considering what's happening there, you know. I I actually want to add one more thing. Oh, go ahead, Terry. Yeah. Um, So a a sort of constructive perspective of why we need a feminist lens is also so that we can help identify each other as allies and we can build collective power. That's a really good point, actually. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Um, Allies are uh, incredibly helpful in in these conversations and this work, which is the the work itself is um, really taxing. It's hard. It's hard to do work in this area. So I want to say again, anyone who has a question, you can raise your hand. Um, you do that by, I believe you open up the participants tab or the chat the chat tab, and you can see a little raise your hand um, button. So uh, please do so if you'd like to ask a question. You can also type your question if you want me to ask it or you'd like us to read it aloud. Um, just you know, throw yourself in there. We're, we're looking for um, reflections for your own experiences or maybe even broader reflections. We're looking for questions. Um, don't be shy. I know this is a difficult topic, so I want to make sure that everyone is feeling like they can participate. Um, before we jump into that, while everyone's still thinking, let's go to another question that was submitted online. So um, this is a, a, a bit of a longer one. It's quite interesting. The narrative of home as a safe space for women has been deeply challenged in the US, especially on social media during this time of crisis and confinement. So, you know, the home previously seen as a safe space is now being questioned as not particularly safe given um, COVID and um, the political unrest. And uh, how have uh, similar discussions emerged in the, the Muslim belt? And has this been an opportunity to enhance advocacy efforts related to the types of violence against women and girls that often occurs in the home, where it's a, it's it's a perhaps less visible because it's behind closed doors? I'm sorry, like just the, the main question part of it was sure. this sure. effect women. Have, have discussions started to emerge in the Muslim belt around the home as not necessarily being a safe space, basically? Absolutely. I think it's been ongoing, and I think the pandemic has just sort of exacerbated that. Uh, those discussions are, but I think people are less likely to speak up because where are they going to go? This is the bottom line. Mm-hmm. And, and so you take it. That's basically been it. Or you get on the phone with your mom or with your dad and you figure out a way out. I think it's really been just dire in this mm-hmm. part of the world how people are handling this. And I think what what's going to come out of it, we'll see numbers. And I mean, already we're seeing the numbers, already we're figuring out. But the, there are mobile apps that are helping. I think this volunteer volunteers that I spoke about before are still there. But the discussions are there, whether they're loud or whispers is the question. Mm. Um, people don't, I mean, I've had people will say, don't call if your neighbor is eating his wife. And I've, I've actually had these discussions with, with Turkish citizens who think that it's nobody's business to interfere. Because some of the arguments are, well, she's going to go back. They always go back to the husband. Why bother? Why get yourself involved? Why get yourself killed? Um, but these discussions are not, you know, and it's a, the safety part of it is what's interesting right now is the home was never really the safe space, but now it's become, mm-hmm. you know. Um, initially, I don't know if you guys noticed on uh, on social media, there were, I was getting them. 
I was getting all of these memes and videos about how men were so upset that they had to stay home with their wives. They were going crazy, you know, and I reacted to that immediately because meanwhile yeah. in my inbox, I was getting emails from friends, friends that these are people, you know, who don't normally talk about their husbands being abusive, but from Australia to Canada to Turkey to Afghanistan, I was getting emails from friends saying, oh my God, I can't take being in the same house with my significant other, with my spouse. And I wasn't seeing that many memes or, you know, the, the sort of pop culture reaction to that, to women saying enough, this is hard because they right. were the real, the real, the real problem were the men, not the women. You know, and so there were a lot of discussions about how couples were uh, during the pandemic were struggling to survive uh, or to, to make their marriage less because you saw in China, divorce rates went up. And I'm sure we're going to mm -hmm. see a lot of that across the globe. But I was just it's like in my own circle, I, I became very critical when with these memes. And I said, stop, guys, this has to stop. So, right. so what about in New York, Terry? Um, I know there's been discussions I've seen in the U.S., and I'm curious about the, the circles that you work in in New York, if there's been discussions around how the home is perhaps no longer, you know, a, quote, safe space, or maybe it never was. So in 2018, the U.N. put out a report on um, a global report on violence against women. And I think the first sentence they said is the home is the da most dangerous place to be for a woman. <laughs> and so I feel like amongst people who are survivors, um, and certainly people who work in this space, we already knew that. And so what I think might be um, illuminating because of COVID is that other people are maybe starting to see that as well, because you know the UN put another report out or, um, in April, not a report, a condensed version, where they called global violence against women the shadow pandemic, right? Now that's not gotten a lot of press, but, you know, the, the statistics around increases in domestic violence all over the world, you know, are estimated between like 30 to 100 percent increase. And so 100 percent in deaths, for example, I recently interviewed someone um, from Britain who says that the death rate has femicide rate has doubled um, in his estimate. But you know, in terms of instances, sure. And that, of course, is exacerbated by structural, you know, gender inequality, because then we also see, you know, all the women who are in the front lines working and putting their lives at risk and dying at, you know, higher rates, potentially because they're frontline workers, and also being laid off at higher rates, those statistics have come in, too. So I feel like what's now emerging is less that the home was you know, either safe or dangerous, but that there's this interconnectedness quality that we need to think of, especially because of the um, infectious nature of the disease itself, of the virus itself, right? That, you know, one's own um, well-being is impacted by the least, you know, the, the most disenfranchised person, you know, in our society, right? We're still going to be at risk. And I think this pandemic illustrates that on an intellectual level, it just hasn't made that shift in terms of activating people to doing something about it yet. Right. I think that's a perfect segue into our last question, the, which is basically, it's, it's a good question. It's a nice place to end, actually. Do you have any advice for feminists trying to be allies to those experiencing domestic violence? You know, where can people go? What can they do if they want to be allies? Um, I think it depends on where you are, right? Yeah. Uh, if you think, uh, again, in, in this part of the world, you take the woman out and, you have, and she has nowhere to go. It's not necessarily going to be the answer. Um, you have to consider 
the context of what the situation is. Um, and being an ally could be anything from talking to them to providing services for them and introducing them to the organizations. I get a lot of calls from refugees, specifically Afghan women refugees, asking mm-hmm. for that. Uh, just a few weeks ago, a friend was asking about mental health for a woman who's being abused um, in the language, in, in Dari or Farsi or language. And I, I scrambled to find someone uh, again on Zoom. So I guess this is the good thing is that this now everyone is getting familiarized. I think women, even survivors, have become more friendly with technology and have learned technology during the pandemic more and learned mm-hmm. ways to reach out to, you know, through technology. So I see empowerment in some in some sense through technology here. But uh, and then it could it could just call your neighbor who's yelling outside. You know, that's it's, 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 I can't say that enough. You've got to stand up. You've got to stand mm-hmm. up. You can't remain silent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Terry, what about you? So for me in the U.S., I would say if you, even if you're a survivor, you can still be an ally to other survivors. And one of the ways is, of course, joining my gendered collective because, you know, the journey towards consciousness um, raising and healing is a long one and it's not linear. And so being able to have access to a group of people who have you know, experience different things with different levels of awareness can be really helpful in um, providing emotional support as well as knowledge sharing. And then for those who are not survivors, you know, whether, you know, whatever gender, male, female, being just as invested in being an anti-sexist is important because, you know, we've seen lots of memes in the past several weeks around, you know, racism and you can't, um, in a racist society, it's not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist. Well, I believe that in a sexist society, it's not enough to be anti-sexist. We actually need to be pro-feminist because anti-sexism only deals with the protective aspects of feminism where we are trying to keep ourselves safe from sexual violence, exploitation, and oppression. And domestic violence is one of those forms of oppression. But if we are to be pro-feminist, we're actually envisioning and enacting a world where we can all thrive. And so that's that's the point of where equality matters, you know, not just getting rid of the harms, potential harms and risks. And, and so being a pro-feminist ally means um, learning, you know, not having stigmas around the F word. My white friend didn't want to read the, the book Rage Becomes Her because she thought the word rage was she didn't want to be associated with the word rage and <laughs> that's, tell, that's yeah. telling in itself exactly <laughs> and, and so we all need yeah. to read feminist texts intersectional feminist texts and that needs to be part of the vernacular just as much as reading you know all these anti-racism texts um that should also mm-hmm. be part of the vernacular Mm -hmm. Well, I'll just uh, end with my two cents on it as well, that I think two things, um, letting survivors lead. So this has been something that um, I feel like I had to learn long ago when I first started doing work in this area, that um, survivors actually know what's best for the situation, and they know the nuances of each situation much more than we will. Um, So rather than saying, okay, here's what you do X, Y, and Z, it's very, very helpful to say, hey, what do you think we should do? Hey, how can I help? And also not overstepping the boundaries that survivors set because the boundaries that they set may 
be particularly important to their safety in the setting. And then finally, I often get, you know, what can men do? What what can men do that want that care about this issue that are not perpetrators? And I really love men consulting with men groups, these like kind of men, men engaging men. And I say, deal with your shit, work your shit out, bring women in to consult. But like at the end of the day, men have some stuff to work out and they need to work it out. And they need to not worry about kind of telling women what to do, but rather work your shit out. It, it looks like we have a, it looks like we have a comment. I can read it aloud, Mobina, if you'd like. Um, we're right at the end of our session, so I'll just read it really quick. Uh, she writes, uh, I am a Muslim lawyer and regularly have to deal with elders that Muslim women do not leave, do not leave home. Um, only, bad women, only bad women lose the home. Um, I think this is a, a, a barrier, like a, a, a shame barrier that we're dealing with. Um, at, at least that I, I've noticed that as well, Mobina. But um, obviously, Fariba, you have much more intimate knowledge of this. I think the best way to deal with this is through Islamic feminism. And what that means is going back to the Quran and finding feminist interpretations of Islam that you can bring to them, like literally bring the book and say, this is what it means. And there have been so many reinterpretations. There needs to be more, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, there's English texts of those. I can provide those for anyone who needs this. This is the best way to deal with our elders and sometimes our men, because this is how they'll listen. And and, and the faith does not necessarily tell, it is patriarchal. I'm not going to deny that. There's no way of denying that. But these feminist interpretations have really, really helped out, (laughs) helped me out. And I've done this in numerous situations where I'm like, no, this is not okay. So in fact, in Islam, we say uh, talaq, which is divorce, is fars, you know, nikah, sunnat, which means getting married is a tradition, but getting divorced is actually mandatory if you're in a position where you have to. It gives women the right to divorce. So a woman who has to leave home has the right through Islamic principles and law that she can't, right? Mm -hmm. So these are the ways that I think we have to really, like we have to teach ourselves these various interpretations in the textual sense, because they might listen to that. (laughs) <laughs> right. I love that. There's also a, a very a large a growing movement of Muslim feminists, of Islamic feminists. Like this is a big growing movement. And so um, I encourage everyone to look this up. Before we end, can you tell everyone how to find you and support your work? Both yeah. Terry and Fariba. <laughs> sure. I'll just uh, quickly end because my kids are probably going to come in soon. Um, <laughs> I'm on Twitter at Fariba Noah on Instagram. Also, please check out on spec our podcast. Um, if you're interested, we're like an audio news magazine uh, that covers the underserved communities in the global South mostly. Um, and it's a on spec podcast. We're on Anchor and Spotify and Apple, all of those. And um, Facebook is really where I do a lot of my discussions. So Messenger, Facebook. Fantastic. And Terry? Two websites I'm going to give is engenderedcollective.org, which has links to join our group, our private group, and uh, engendered.us, which is our podcast website, and it has all the links for social media. Fantastic. Um, And I'm putting in the chats right now, two things. So if you'd like to join us for the next sessions, we have seven weeks of these sessions going. You can go to that first link that I provided where you can register for additional sessions. These are free and open to the public. Please join us. And then if you want to learn more about Continuum Collective, our community that is engaged in, you know, interconnected learning and feminist work, please go to continuumcollective.org.
Again, it's continuumcollective.org. And it looks like Mobina um, wants some materials sent to her. So Fariba, I think you might be best placed for that. But if you need any help, um, also our uh, email and contact information is all on our website, continuumcollective.org. So Mobina, if you'd like to contact me, um, just let us know or our team. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Our next session will be um, next, I believe it's Wednesday, yes, uh, with Rachel Hills on the 17th at noon. We're going to be talking about motherhood and the changing nature of parenthood in uh, amidst crisis and COVID-19. So I hope you'll join us. And thank you everyone so much for, for your time. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.